Greetings to all inhabitants of Earth, as well as our friends from distant planets, galaxies, and dimensions. Lend me your ears as we make podcast history, for I am Herman, the extraterrestrial incarnate, your podcast navigator to the stars and beyond, here to inform, illuminate, and entertain your world. Welcome once again to another thrilling excursion into Herman the Extraterrestrial's podcast. And tonight, today, whatever time you may be listening, I'm going to take you somewhere that no one ever took you before. You know, uh, when I was, uh, I mentioned the last uh, podcast that, uh, you know, when I incarnated to Earth in 1953 into the middle of the civil rights movement, and here I am discovering that I am in the body of a Negro. And uh, from the extraterrestrial perspective, you got to understand, you know, uh, pretty much every single planet in this sector, we get the news, so to speak, okay? Uh, We get the news, it travels by light. You think you invented the TV set on Earth. They've had the holographic screen for years and years, for hundreds of thousands of years. There's, you know, we can, pra- we can basically read the light, so to speak, and, um, and visit the time, you know, visit past times on planet Earth. We can, we can visit your past as easily as we can change the channel, <laughs> as easily as you change the channel on your, on your big screen TV sets with your remote controls. We can sit there, we can, we can dial in 1953 and we can see what was happening in 1953 because that light is traveling in space, you see. So from the extraterrestrial point of view, we don't uh, have to study history from a book. We actually dial it in and go back and see what was happening at that time. So being able to view the history of planet Earth Pretty much every extraterrestrial in this sector of the universe knows how poorly Negroes, blacks, colored niggas, uh, African-Americans, uh, yellow Negroes, we, everyone knows how poorly they're treated on planet Earth, okay? It's, 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 it's terrible, okay? We get that. Like I said in the last podcast, no one in the universe is sitting around thinking, oh, I want to go to Earth and be a Negro. <laughs> it's just not happening. I've never heard that conversation. My passion in life has always been listening, observing, studying, and, um, and basically what I have seen and what I have studied since I have been an infant, so to speak, is that I have witnessed that the Negro, the colored man, because I am in the body of one, sort of incognito, so to speak, Everyone just assumes, hey, there's another Negro standing there, as opposed to, oh, yes, from the outside, I, I do, I am a Negro, but on the inside, I'm from somewhere else, and I'm in a nightmare, <laughs> and I have to be honest with you. You have to be really honest with you, and uh, it's not like I'm extremely fond of black people. <laughs> You might say, that's crazy, man. That is crazy. How can you say that? Well, I'm not, because I understand the ideology of blackness. And when you understand the ideology of blackness, as everyone else in the universe does, it is mind-blowing to be upon a planet in which a whole race of people 
embrace an ideology of blackness. The absurdity, you know, from the extra, again, from an extraterrestrial uh, point of view, okay? If you're a human being, go right ahead, you know, do your thing. But I'm just saying from an extraterrestrial point of view, we understand the meaning of words. Words are code. Language is code and language is vibration. You know, the words that you hear coming through your ear pods or over your computer, however you are listening to this podcast, you see. These actual words are vibrations. You, you, you not only hear the words in your pod, it, within your ear pods, but the, you feel the vibration of the words, and the words carry a resonance within the universe, as your words do, as all words do. And you have to understand that on planet Earth, when you think, why is there, why is there so much of a disaster on this planet? Why, why, are, the, why are things so disruptive? In this particular, on this particular planet, as I, as I mentioned before, the prison planet Earth, this is one of the only places where actual language, words, are used to express anything, okay? Uh, m most beings throughout, this, throughout the universe, I would say at least 80% of the beings in the universe, as far as I know, in the known universe, all right, except for very primitive cultures, there are planets, there are systems in the universe that are hundreds of trillions of years old, okay, in terms of the material world, in terms of time, okay, because once you, once you open up these bubbles of, of creation, you, you, you just can't say, okay, let's just get rid of it now. <laughs> you just can't. You, you can't do that because, you, because life has now, the definition of life is when the immortal sparks of the creation uh, take on physical forms within another dimension within the creation. So the, these bubbles expand within the actual creation. And here's a bubble of, of duality that we're living in now. And so this world, this this universe was manifested by the a collective of uh, individualized immortal sparks of the creation, who also are manifesting themselves within the physical forms within the universe. All physical forms, from the micro to the macro, are are manifestations of the uh, imagination and the mind and the vibrations of the immortal sparks of the creation. And so, in terms of physical forms, in terms of physical body structures and the containment shells, the Negro, quote, black body form is the absolute most difficult body form to escape from, which is why no one wants to come to Earth and be a Negro, because it is the one body form on planet Earth that everyone hates. <laughs> Even blacks hate blacks, okay? <laughs> blacks hate blacks worse than the white people these days, you know, because it's not white people out there murdering all the blacks in Chicago and Baltimore and Detroit. It's not, it's not the white people out there. It's not the police officers who are committing genocide within their own communities and who have been doing so since the 1980s, you know, since, since the gangster rap culture, <laughs> as if things couldn't get worse. And so what we're going to do in this particular podcast, 
You know, from my incognito point of view, because I have been there from the beginning, so to speak. And, I, um, and I've had incarnations on earth beforehand, but never as a Negro, you see. So it's quite shocking and surprising that I find myself in this position where it seems that throughout all the madness that takes place, that the one individual that most uh, everyone is going to completely disagree with, again, <laughs> because what I'm here to say, you know your purpose by your passion. Well, my passion has always been the end of so-called black culture. Because, you know, there's a movement going on in America right now. It's called the Blexic culture, the Blexic movement. And, uh, you know, and of course, uh, again, again, you have two, quote, black people, two black women who are now on the opposite sides of the same issue, you know, because uh, you have uh, Candace Owens, young, energetic, Republican, conservative, and she's convincing, you know, African-Americans, blacks, to leave the Democratic Party, not the Democratic Party, but the Democrat Party, leave the party, you know, leave that party, it's the party of slavery, it's the party of the, every city in America that is a disaster, in which Negroes, blacks, coloreds, African-Americans, niggas live in, these cities are a disaster, okay? And they're all run by liberals. And uh, for the last hundred years, in some cases. And so the idea is, leave the Democrat Party. But then, as the movement began surging forward, and people are like, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm black, and I'm getting out of the Democrat Party, you know? As the movement began, then suddenly, I was shocked, founder of the original Blexic, threatens Candace Owen with legal action. There's too much at stake, she says, at this point, to allow a movement so important to just be co-opted for political stunts, Mila Connolly said. And so let the battle begin for the Blexic movement. Once again, it's Negro against Negro. And she says, Candace Owens has been using the term Blexic to encourage black people to leave the Democratic Party. However, the term had already been established as a pro-black movement more than two years before Owens tried to recklessly co-op it. According to the real Blexic group, Blexic is a strategic movement towards black independence through economic boycotting, civil disobedience, and organized investment into the black economy. We will no longer participate in our win or contribute to a community that condones our intentional demise. And do you know that these words are strangely familiar? These words are familiar because these words are said over and over and over again, generation after generation by the same disgruntled, angry, frustrated black youth of the time. Where's our share? Where's our share? Where is it? Where is it we want our share? 
Why are we still living in poverty? Why are we still on the bottom rung of society? These questions are asked and have been asked ever since slaves came up out of slavery after the Emancipation Proclamation. <laughs> same question, same damn thing over and over and over again. And you know what? The one question every extraterrestrial wants to ask a Negro going back in time or today, the one question that always puzzled everyone off the planet who studied the history of Earth, the United States, and slavery, the one thing that we never, ever understood is why the Negroes didn't take Lincoln's deal and get the hell out of the United States because he told you you were never, ever, ever going to be equal to the white man on this soil. How do you complain about the way you're treated in a country when the people told you from the very beginning exactly how you were going to be treated. They told you exactly what they were going to do to you, and then they did it to you. They did it right in your face. And then, and then you stayed. You said, you know what? We're going to stay. And, and the reason why you stayed they didn't have the term for it back then. They didn't have a term for it back then. Uh, the term wasn't invented until the 1970s. But if they could have, uh, the, the term would have applied more to the Negro coming up out of slavery than it did in the invention of the term, which is called the Stockholm Syndrome. And so uh, what this podcast is going to be about is really it's going to be, I think, for the first time, perhaps, in history. And I'll probably get in trouble for it. I don't care. But this is going to be about the absolute deconstruction, destruction of so-called black culture. And that black culture is the reason why the 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 black cult by why black people have completely the the neighborhoods the 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 communities and why we're still having the same discussions four hundred years later complaining about the white man and what the white man did or white man didn't do when whose fault is it it is your fault it is the fault of black people it is your fault every single moment of it is your fault. Because you had two choices, stay or go, and your leaders let you down. And when your leaders decided to stay for selfish reasons, and we're going to get into all that because it's not just going to come from me. We're, I'm actually going to read, like, this is going to be, you know, we're 18 minutes into this already. It's gonna, so, you know, it's going to be a couple episodes here. But I'm actually going to read the words, okay, of the various different leaders and show you how it was a disaster. If you're going to stay then it's a disaster to start running around demanding shit. And the first one amazing leader that arose from slavery 
and had the answer at the time, who was resoundly rejected by his people who wanted something now we want to, you know, which was ridiculous. Because once you start seeing these words from the leaders at the time, you understand why it was ridiculous to make any demands in a country that had no intentions of Negroes ever not being slaves. There was never a plan on the table from the inception of the country called the United States of America when slaves, from the first time a slave was bought to this soil, there was never a plan for the Negro blacks from the continent of Africa to be on this soil unless they were slaves. Okay, there was no other way for blacks from the continent of Africa to get here. Like if they would have arrived here and, and started like walking around acting like, hey, we want to buy some land. <laughs> okay, it would have ended badly. Okay, so the only way, oh, there were blacks here on the continent before the white man. It doesn't matter. Once the Anglo-Saxons got here and started wiping out everything from one end of the continent to the other and took possession of the land. Okay, this is our land now, and we're going to do things our way, <laughs> all right? And everybody's going to do things the way we want to do them, and we're going we're gonna to bring some slaves in here, and these slaves are going to be slaves from, for all eternity. These slaves are going to be slaves for all eternity. And they never had any idea that it would be white people who would demand the end of slavery because slavery didn't end because black people had an uprising and we, we don't want to be slaves anymore. We're going to have a sit down. We're not going to work anymore. We, we don't, we're tired of being slaves. <laughs> hey, Massa, we want to make a deal, Massa. I, I work X number of years and you let me go. You know, no, you had no rights. Slaves had no rights. The white man is the, the white man is the reason why there's no more, no longer slavery. Okay. The white man didn't the white man did everything, bent over backwards. Get the hell off of my plantation. Go out into the world. It's the Negro who messed up. All right. So the so the whole concept that it's the white man's fault, that is just an absolute lie. This whole idea that there's such a thing as black culture. Language and culture are inseparable. You know, it's like your fingers and your palm, it call, it's called a hand, all right? You know, you, you can, the fingers and the palm, they're one. They're one and the same. Language is language and culture. Culture is language and language is culture. They're, they both spring from that eternal spring of, of, of shared experiences. And, and, and how we describe those experiences in history, you see. You know, there, it's impossible. It's impossible. Okay. And we're going to go back to the origins of so-called black culture, Negro culture, 1916. See, we can even put a date on it where some bougie Negroes who are wealthy sat around and, and devised the whole concept of this whole black cultural thing Could, and, and, and without even realizing the disaster that they were manifesting at that moment. <laughs> okay? Because from an extraterrestrial point of view, of, of view, we're looking at your history and we're going like, oh no, you guys are messing up. Booker T was the dude, okay? If you paid attention to Booker T, everything, you wouldn't even recognize this society that you're living in right now. You wouldn't even recognize your lives right now. Uh, so again, what is the purpose of this whole podcast? The whole purpose of this podcast is 
my purpose. This is to give uh, information. We want to end black culture now. Black culture is a disaster, okay? Black culture, disaster. Once you are just simply an American, then you fall under all the laws of the citizenship of America and not that farce called the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that disaster. And so, oh yeah, we're going to get into a lot of craziness tonight and you're going to uh, hopefully <laughs> take something away in, from this. So we're going to begin with Lincoln. I'm going to read a few passages from leaders over the years to uh, set the stage for um, how the disaster of black culture began. And so uh, this is an address on colonization to a deputation of Negroes, August 14th, 1862. This afternoon, the President of the United States gave audience to a committee of colored men at the White House. They were introduced by the Reverend J. M J. Mitchell, Commissioner of Immigration, E. M. Thomas, the chairman, remarked that they were there by invitation to hear what the executive had to say to them. Having all been seated, the president, after a few preliminary observations, informed them that a sum of money had been appropriated by Congress and placed at his disposal for the purpose of aiding the colonization of some country aiding the colonization in some country of the people or a portion of them of African descent thereby making it his duty, as it had for a long time been his inclination, to favor that cause, and why, he asked, should the people of your race be colonized, and where? Why should they leave this country? This is perhaps the first question for proper consideration. Now this is Abraham Lincoln talking. You and we are different races. We have, be, we have between us a broader difference than exists between almost any other two races. Whether it is right or wrong, I need not discuss. But the physical difference is a great disadvantage to us both. As I think your race suffer very greatly, many of them by living among us, while ours suffer from your presence. In a word, we suffer on each side. If this is admitted, it affords a reason that least why we should be separated. We here are freemen, I suppose. A voice, yes, sir. Your race are suffering, in my judgment, the greatest wrong inflicted on any people. But, in, but even when you cease to be slaves, ye are far yet removed from being placed on an equality with the white race. You are cut off from many of the advantages which the other race enjoy. The aspiration of man is to enjoy equality with the best when free. But on this broad continent, not a single man of your race is made equal of a single man of ours. Go where you, where you are treated the best and the ban is still upon you. I do not propose to discuss this but present it as a fact with which we have to deal. I cannot alter it if I would. It is a fact about which we think, all think and feel alike, I like and you. We look to our condition 
owning to the existence of the two races on this continent. I need not recount to you the effects upon white men growing out of the institution of slavery. I believe in what he's talking about, the, all, that, uh, all that intercourse between the white men and their slaves happening on all the plantation. That's part of it as well. I believe, uh, continuing, I believe in its general evil effects on the white race. See, our present condition, the country engaged in war, our white men cutting one another's throat, none knowing how far it will extend, and then consider what we know to be the truth. But for your race among us, there could not be war. Although many men engaged on either side do not care for you one way or the other. Nevertheless, I repeat, without the institution of slavery in the colored race as a basis, the war would not have an existence. It is better for us both, therefore, to be separated. I know that there are free men among you who even if they could better their condition are not as much inclined to go out of the country as those who being slaves could obtain their freedom on this condition. I suppose one of the principal difficulties in the way of colonization is that the free colored man cannot see that his comfort would be advanced by it. You may believe you can live in Washington or elsewhere in the United States the remainder of your life as easily, perhaps more so than you can in any foreign country, and hence you may come to the conclusion that you have nothing to do with the idea of going to a foreign country. This, I speak in no unkind sense, is an entire and is extremely selfish view of the case. See, what he's saying is that you people here who are wealthy and have some sense of, of, of being able to live where you please, you don't want to make a decision to leave the country because you think that you can live in comfort for the rest of your lives here. Continue. But you ought to do something to help those who are not so fortunate as yourselves. There is an unwillingness on the part of our people, harsh as it may be, for you free colored people to remain with us. Now, if you could give a start to white people, you would open a wide door to many to be made free. If we deal with those who are not free at the beginning and whose intellects are clouded by slavery, we have very poor material to start with. If intelligent colored men, such as are before me, would move in this matter, much might be accomplished. This is exceedingly important that we have men at the beginning capable of thinking as white men and not those who have been systematically oppressed. There is much to encourage you. For the sake of your race, you should sacrifice something of your present comfort for the purpose of being as grand in that respect as the white people. It is a cheering thought throughout life that something can be done to ameliorate the condition of those who have been subject to the hard usage of the world. 
It is difficult to make a man miserable while he feels he is worthy of himself and claims kindred to the great God who made him. In the American Revolution, war sacrifices were made by men engaged in it, but they were cheered by the future. General Washington himself endured greater physical hardships than if he had remained a British subject. Yet he was a happy man because he was engaged in benefiting his race, something for the children of his neighbors, having none of his own. The place I am thinking about for a colony is Central America. It is, newer to, it is nearer to us than Liberia, not much more than one-fourth as far as Liberia, and within seven days run by steamers. Unlike Liberia, it, has, it is on the great line of travel. travel. It, has a, it is a highway. The country is a very excellent one for any people, and with great natural resources and advantages, and especially because of the similarity of climate with, of, your of your native land thus being suited to your physical condition. The particular place I have in view is to be a great highway from the Atlantic or Caribbean Sea to the Pacific Ocean, and this particular place has all the advantage for a colony. On both sides, there are harbors among the finest in the world. Again, there is evidence of very rich coal mines. A certain amount of coal is valuable in any country, and there may be more than enough for the wants of the country. I, why I attach so much importance to coal, it will afford an opportunity for the inhabitants for immediate employment until they get ready to settle permanently in their homes. So the bottom line is he continues on. And he, he continues on and Lincoln gives the, uh, the, the slaves. He gives these uh, free men. He says, I want you to go back and tell people, look, we got this fantastic place we want you to go. But if you stay here, okay, if you stay here, you're never going to be thought of as equal. I mean, I love you, but like, I, don't even, I don't even think of you as being equal. You know, I'm just telling you what to do. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. So, so if you don't be selfish and don't be thinking about how good your life is right now because you're a free man in America and you're living comfortable, don't be thinking like that. Okay, because we, we're never going to accept you as being equal. How much time do we have? Okay, let's keep going. The next one. We have uh, Chief Justice Roger B. Taney, you know, and when you're in Baltimore, Maryland. You know, for years, I had wondered, you know, when I, I go to Monument Park, and it's a very fabulous place. I love the sculptures of Monument Park. And then I always looked at, you know, Monument Park, and there's George Washington on the Washington Monument, and Lafayette is in front of him on his steed. And then right behind him was, uh, you know, uh, Chief Justice Roger B. Taney. Uh, so he was from Maryland. Roger B. Taney wrote the majority decision for the uh, Dred Scott uh, uh, case. And, uh, and so, of course, he's making the case as to why uh, Negroes aren't considered to be uh, uh, citizens. And so, therefore, you can't even bring a lawsuit into court, so get the hell out of here, basically, what he's saying. And, uh, and so here's part of his uh, majority decision. You can look this up online. They had for more than a century, he's speaking about Negroes, they had for more than a century been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations. 
and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. He was bought and sold and treated as an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic whenever a profit could be made by it. This opinion was at that time fixed and universal in the civilized portion of the white race. It was regarded as an axiom in morals as well as in politics, which no one thought of disputing or supposed to be open to dispute. The men in every grade and position in society daily and habitually acted upon it in their private pursuits as well as in matters of public concern without doubting for a moment the correctness of this opinion. You know, here is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. And, of course, when the South heard this, okay, this is um, 18, um, 1857. And so when the South heard this, of course, the South is like, they're cheering. Okay, so Negroes are not citizens of the United States onward and upward, and we're going to fight for every penny that we can get. You know, you just can't. It's like when you think about it, a slave was property. And, um, and so when you have the abolitionists coming along and, uh, and the abolitionists saying, oh, it's time to end slavery. Well, they're saying, well, what are you going to do with, uh, with our, uh, you know, the, we own these slaves. This is our property. You just can't take our property from us. And uh, this, this deal that Lincoln had going to, uh, going to South America, okay, with the coal mine, you know, they put money together to ship the Negroes off, get the hell off the continent, this is why I was saying that there was no way that they were going to let blacks from the continent of Africa come onto the continent of the United States of America unless they were slaves. There was no plan. And then the slaves, and then, and then really it was these bougie Negroes who had the good life who didn't want to leave. They're like, no, this is our country. And he said, no, it's not your country. It'll never be your country. Oh, so, my, so the point is, how do you make the decision to stay? And Lincoln said it himself. It's for selfish reasons. You aren't thinking about all the other poor slaves that have no education. They're, got, they're not going to have any opportunities. And, and people, don't, people, don't, people, don't, people forget, you know. You know, Emancipation Proclamation, oh, yeah, 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 we're not slaves anymore, okay? And so the, the masses say, okay, slave, get the hell off my land. Okay, the slave's like, well, where am I going to go? And so all the slaves are like, oh, we're going to walk to, we're going to walk up north. Think about what's happening right now on, this, on our southern border, <laughs> the southern border of the United States of America. You have, you have people, you know, walking, you know, from South America across continents to reach the promised land, America, to get a job, all right? It's no different than after the Emancipation Proclamation, you had all these blacks, Negroes, coloreds, walking from the south to the north looking for jobs, all right? And so in many ways you could say, you know, the, 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 the industrialists in America, they were all set up to completely replace the old Negroes for some new Negroes, all right? They got some Negroes. They got new Negroes coming up from the South. They're cheaper. They don't complain. They work all day. <laughs> Believe me, this is, what, this is what's happening. And so, and, and, and then Negroes, blacks, coloreds, African-Americans, 
uh, niggas, they're still complaining about the same shit that they were complaining about back in the 1800s. But here's the problem. The white people were telling you, get the hell out. Again, why not leave? And if you're going to stay, then you got to have a strategy. If you're going to stay, you got to have a strategy to get around the very fact that you are despised by the very people that you call your neighbors. I mean, listen to this. This is from um, Waco, Texas. Like, I did a whole study because when you think about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, I'm going to be reading from Stokely Carmichael soon. And Stokely Carmichael, one of the first people to say, listen, Civil Rights Acts aren't written for, uh, aren't written for black people. They're written for white people. White people, they're written for white people to tell white people what they can't do. And I'm going to read that. So, you know, so I'm not, don't look at me, I'm not the first person who said the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a disaster. You know, it was a disaster because it didn't put any money in Negroes' pockets, people. The March on Washington, oh, that fantastic March on Washington, Dr. King, I have a dream. Malcolm X called it the farce on Washington. I'm going to read that for you called it the farce on Washington. See, every time, you know, you black set, Candace Owens, and then next thing you know, here comes her opponent. I said it first. I said it at first. I'm not going to let that Candace steal it from us. She's making it popular all over the country, and, 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 and black people are actually using it as a rallying point to leave the Democrat Party, which we had the similar, uh, we had similar concepts, uh, but I can't just call up uh, Candace and say, hey, hey, hey girl, you, you, I love what you're doing with it. Can we get together and talk? No, I got to go sue her. <laughs> black versus black. And so, um, you know, so I did all this research, you know, because you have, you know, uh, President Johnson was from Texas. And a, a very good argument could be made that Texas was the most racist state in the union, the most racist state in the union, because even after the Emancipation Proclamation, <laughs> they were so racist. They were like, no, no, we ain't going to let them slaves go. <laughs> we let them go. No, we're not going to do it. They're not free. They're going to be walking around here. There is no way I'm going to let any Negro stand up and look me in the eye like a man and, and act like a man and try to look me in the eye and think he's a man. I will put, I will shoot him down like a dog. This is what people used to say. And, um, and here, here, this is in Waco, Texas. It's in a book called Looking Back, Sarah Ann Pangle remembered that in quotes, the campaign of 1873, when Richard Koch of Waco ran against E.J. Davis, we had some real exciting times. White men, she explained, were instructed to come armed, and one person decided to try shooting to scare the Negroes off, and so he started shooting, I think on the, I think on the courthouse lawn. When blacks who had, uh, who had come to vote heard the shooting, they piled into their wagons and buggies and left town. Then the white men went ahead and had their vote. The way was made much better for us after the Klan began to operate. All right, this is an interview with, uh, with uh, Sarah Ann Ross Pringle. And then, um, and here's another one. Uh, Waco Daily Advance warned against the extension of civil rights to blacks. 
when a black man attempts to force himself on a social equality with the whites to enter their schools, churches, and homes, wrote the editor, he will step upon ground that will open a grave at his feet. Another thing, uh, convict leasing, Matthew J. Massini, one dies, get another, convict leasing in the American South, 1866 to 1928, Columbia University of South Carolina Press, 1996. Um, it says, the most abusive legal discrimination heaped on black central Texans was the convict lease system. During the 50 years following emancipation, South Court did not usually send convicts to prison, but rather pack them off to farmers and businesses who were in search of cheap labor. And, uh, and so, you know, this is, this is one of the things that happened in the South, you know, uh, Emancipation Proclamation, and the, the last thing that white people could stand was seeing lazy Negroes sitting around. And so if you were a lazy Negro sitting around doing nothing, you could get arrested. <laughs> You would get arrested, and then they would go bang, bang, gavel down. Next thing you know, you're working on a, on a, in a coal mine, or you're working on a railroad track. <laughs> you're doing some kind of work on a farm. Convict leasing, you know. There was slavery after slavery. So the point is, um, the point is, here you are in a hostile territory. You decide to stay in a hostile territory. You decide to live among people who tell you from the very get-go that they don't want you to stay. You're gonna like, but we're gonna stay, okay, because we love it. And, uh, and so I bring in the Stockholm Syndrome idea. We're gonna get to that in a minute, because Stockholm Syndrome is very important. You know what? <clears throat> you know what? I found the uh, file. It's a, it's an essay I wrote a couple years ago. It's called the. Uh, here it is. What is the name of the essay? <laughs> Blackness, the Stockholm Syndrome, and Uncle Tom. And um, and so when we get into uh, defining the Stockholm uh, Syndrome, I'm just going to read from what I have in the uh, in the essay because it make it easier for me. <laughs> I can just read this. Uh, Stockholm Syndrome refers to a group of psychological symptoms that occur in some persons in captive in a captive or hostage situation. It has received considerable media publicity in recent years because it has been used to explain the behavior of such well-known kidnapping victims as Patty Hearst, 1974, and the Elizabeth Smart, 2002, uh, the term which, uh, which takes its name from a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden, in October of 1973. The robbers took four employees of the bank, three women, uh, three women and one man, uh, into the vault with them and kept them for hostage for 131 hours. After the employees were finally released, they appeared to have formed a uh, paradoxical emotional bond with their captors, telling reporters that they saw the police as their enemy rather than the bank robbers and that they had positive feelings towards the criminals. The syndrome was first named by Niles Bejerot, uh, 1921 uh, to 1988, uh, that's, uh, I guess, a year uh, birth to death, you know, a medical professor who specialized in research and served as a psychiatric consultant to the Swedish police during the standoff at the bank. Stockholm Syndrome is also known as Survival Identification Syndrome. 
causes and symptoms. Stockholm syndrome does not affect all hostages in parentheses or persons in comparable situations, close parentheses. In fact, a Federal Bureau of Investigation FBI study of over 1,200 hostage-taking incidents found that 92% of the hostages did not develop Stockholm syndrome. FBI researchers then interviewed flight attendants who had been taken hostage during airplane hijackings and concluded that three factors were necessary for the syndrome to develop. One, the crisis situation lasts for several days or longer. Two, the hostage takers remain in contact with the hostages, that is, the hostages are not placed in separate room. Three, the hostage takers show some kindness towards the hostages or at least refrain from harming them. Hostages abused by captors typically feel anger towards them and do not usually develop the syndrome. Four, in addition, people who often feel helpless in other stressful life situations or are willing to do anything in order to survive seem to be more susceptible to developing Stockholm Syndrome if they are taken hostage. People with Stockholm Syndrome, continuing, continuing, people with Stockholm Syndrome report the same symptoms as those diagnosed with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, insomnia, nightmares, general ir irritability, difficulty concentrating, being easily startled, feelings of unreality or confusion, inability to enjoy previously pleasurable experiences, increased distrust of others, and flashbacks. Prisoners of war, as well as abused spouses and children over long periods of time, often show the symptoms of Stockholm Syndrome. It should be noted that 131 hours is equivalent to 5.4 days. So it took less than a week for the hostages of the original Swedish bank robbery to become grateful to the hostage takers. At the age of 11, J.C. Lee Duggard was kidnapped from her home by a convicted sex offender and held captive for 18 years. Patty Hearst was held captive for almost two years and at the time was very grateful to members of the Sibinese Liberation Army. Elizabeth Smart, <laughs> sorry, Sorry. Elizabeth Smart was held hostage for nine months, not far from where she lived. In each of these high-profile cases, the Stockholm Syndrome was brought up as the underlying reason for these women to endure to refuse to either escape or seek help when in public. So, folks, Negroes were held captive for 248 years plus 100 years following the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, with all the Jim Crow laws lynching that took place over that same period of time. Think about what Negroes were taught to believe about themselves over the 348 years leading up to Brown versus Board of Education. This list merely represents the basics, okay? You ready for this? All right. Separation from the rest of society is good for the Negro because they would never be considered equal to or fit to live among white people. This, according to Chief Justice Roger B. Taney. We just read that. Abraham Lincoln and most of America. Negroes, number two. Negroes are less than human, savages, 
whose only hope is slavery in the Bible, which is equal to death and going to heaven to be with the Savior, because a Negro will never be happy in America. Three, Negroes could be jailed for any reason, including the need for free labor. Four, Negroes could be beaten, lynched, or nigger barbecued for being too smart, looking at a white woman, sassing a white person, being a successful businessman slash businesswoman for fun and sport, or because a dog is worth more than a nigger, was the, was the old saying in Texas. Five, Negroes are evil slash stupid. Six, Negroes are violent. Seven, Negroes are lazy and shiftless. Eight, Negroes are dirty. Nine, Negroes are sinners because of all the above and below. Close parentheses. Ten, Negroes cannot take care of themselves. Eleven, Negroes require the government to be their daddies. Twelve, Negroes know their place. 13, Negroes are inferior to whites. 14, Negroes are soulless without Jesus. 15, Negroes are worthless, have no purpose other than being enslaved by fast food, the lottery, drugs, alcohol, and the ignorance of gangster rap. So the idea that Negroes were suffering from severe to mild symptoms of Stockholm Syndrome from the 1700s on is a no friggin' brainer. And this Stockholm Syndrome continues till today. It is DNA. It's passed into the DNA because, you know, when you have a, a, a culture, when you have a race of people who actually think it's okay to use the words of the former masses, the slaves. See, language and culture are inseparable. And all of the negativity associated with the treatment of the Negro slash black slash colored people slash mulattoes slash yellow Negro slash niggas in America, all of that is summed up culturally in the word N-I-G-G-E-R. It's all also summed up in the word black, you see. Because um, all you have to do is, uh, is, you know, look up the word black in the dictionary, okay? <laughs> and, um, and I did, because see, in the, in the 1950s and 1960s, when this whole, when, uh, Malcolm, when uh, Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael and the whole black power movement, when this whole thing was happening, you know, it's not like everybody was saying, oh, yeah, I'm black, I'm black. People were still saying, no, I'm colored. People say, no, I'm a Negro. People, you know, within the community, people did not agree, okay? There's never been a moment when a so-called black people, so-called slash Negroes agreed on anything. And, uh, and I haven't revealed the name of the one true leader of the so-called Negro people who really wasn't a leader so much as the person who had the way, the way out of the, uh, out of the, out of that, you know, matrix of hatred and a matrix of, of looking down upon. This is the man who had the way out. And I'm going to give you the name before we end this, but I want to, I want, let's go to the definition of the word black. And, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm always criticized because 
quote so-called black people go, that's the white man's definition. You just can't, you can't be using you, the white man's definition to define. We don't define black by the white man's definition. Language and culture. When you use the white man's words, okay, you're using the Anglo-Saxon words to describe yourself, okay? In the Anglo-Saxon language that you are using, the word black is a commercial term that means slave from the continent of Africa. And then they go on to define it in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, okay, as thoroughly sinister or evil, wicked, indicative of condemnation or discredit, connected with or evoking the supernatural and especially the devil. Very sad, gloomy, or calamitous, black despair, marked by the occurrence of disaster, characterized by hostility or angry discontent, black resentment filled his heart. You understand? And, and the, 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 the mother of all definitions be, uh, especially for the so-called black people slash Negro slash mulattoes slash colored slash uh, uh, yellow Negro slash niggas who have accepted their master's religion, the, the uh, Anglo-Saxon version of Christianity, the religion, okay, that you've accepted the religion, okay, you are all in. And, um, and black is the absence of light, Black is the absence of light. You know, and, and in terms of the spiritual connection on planet Earth and using language, okay, because you have to understand again, uh, as I started off, language and culture are inseparable. Language is code, okay? If you, uh, if you, if you only speak uh, Ebonics and you wind up in France and you're trying to have a conversation with the French, they won't even understand the English that you're speaking because it's Ebonics, unless they listen to rap music and stuff. You know, language, French is a code. Uh, Norwegian is code, Spanish is code. You have to understand the code in order to understand the people and their culture, because there are certain words within ma various different languages and cultures that, are, that just don't translate over. And uh, if you were really gonna be true to the culture, like say, oh, I'm, I, my people are from the continent of Africa, and you were going to create a culture within a culture, then, then you would have to adopt the language of the culture that you wish to adopt and bring that language into this particular country, this particular culture, and adopt that culture within and be completely separated, you know? Like if you're an Italian and you come to America, you're an Italian-American, okay? There's no such a thing as an African-American, okay? Unless you are actually from the continent of Africa. You left Nigeria or what, you know, whatever particular country from the continent of Africa and then came to America and you are living here and you have this sort of dual passport thing and then you say, well, I want to become a citizen of the United States. I want to become an American. And then you would drop the Nigeria. You wouldn't say I'm a Nigerian-American. You say, I'm Nigerian, but I am a citizen of America. There's no, such a, there's no such a continent as black, okay? The continent of Africa is not called black. It's the continent of Africa. And so when you say, I'm a black American, you're not a black. You're, the blackness is an ideology. It's not a fact. 
and you're using the words of, of the culture that you are part of to try to separate yourself from the culture, which is impossible because so-called black culture is American, uh, American culture. So-called black history is American history. You can't have a history on this continent and it be part of the history of the continent and then try to separate yourself from the culture of the, of, and from the culture and the language unless you adopt a whole new language and bring your, your culture from Africa here and nobody's going to want to do that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they tried in the 60s with all the African dancing and African garb and trying to revive African culture, but you're still using the English language. You're still describing yourself based upon the language of the people that conquered you. All right. And that still conquer you to this day because the uh, because blackness is an ideology. The cult, black culture is the sympathetic embracement of white racist ideology. It's the Stockholm syndrome. It's your not your unwillingness, your not it's your connection to the very people who enslave you. And that and so then when you continue to separate yourself, right, you're doing exactly what the culture wanted you to do. Yeah. Exactly what they you know, everything that Lincoln said and everything that Roger B. Taney and everything that every racist ever said about never wanting to have his kids want Wind up in school sitting next to a Negro. This is the things when you start talking, when they start talking about all this segregation and we need to do stuff on our own, as Stokely Carmichael and all those dudes did back in the 1960s. These people were wrong, period, the end. Because assimilation, becoming an American, not African American, Black American, Negro American, just American. And then what happens is you don't need a Civil Rights Act of 1964 because you have the Constitution and the 14th Amendment, okay? Okay, so um, my, my clock is showing me that we're hitting an hour here, an hour and four minutes or something like that. So I like to keep it to within an hour. So we're going to put a little end to this particular uh Part one of this, uh, you know, I'm not going to come up with any kind of little fancy uh, acronym. This whole thing is about walking away from black culture. Blackness is an ideology. It is not a fact. Okay? It is an ideology. It's an ideology based upon white racist ideology. <laughs> you don't even realize it. And this is why so many black youth are murdering each other with reckless abandonment in cities like Chicago and Detroit, okay? And Baltimore and all over this country. Ever since, you think about it, you had the two, um, uh, Kenneth and Mamie Clark. Kenneth and Mamie Clark, 1940s. This is what I'm going to leave you on. Kenneth and Mamie Clark, 1940s. They did the, uh, the controversial uh, experiment with the black doll, white doll experiment where they uh, had some uh, African-American children come into a room and they presented them with the... Um, with the various different dolls, asking them to choose between, here's the, some of the question, show me the doll that you like best or that you'd like to play with. Show me the doll that is a nice doll. Show me the doll that looks like the bad doll. Show me the doll that, you know, so they, they were, you know, you know, which doll do you really want? So, of course, all the Negro children chose the white doll. The bad doll was the black doll, you know, in every case. And so the kids, and so this, was, this shocked everyone, you know. The self-esteem of these children is, is terrible. You know, they want to be white. <laughs> 
And from the children's perspective, from the mouths of youth, why wouldn't they want to be white? The white kids had a perfect life, and their lives were miserable because they decided, because their, their, their ancestors decided to stay in a country that told them from the beginning that your lives are going to be miserable. <laughs> and then what happened is then... Uh, so then you have all this African, you know, it was one, they actually, the Clarks testified at the Brown versus uh, Board of Education uh, hearing, and their testimony was one of the uh, factors that helped uh, get this, this whole thing passed. And so, um, so then 2005, Carrie Davis, a young uh, woman in Harlem, she repeats the experiment again. Okay, so we're talking 1940s when the Clarks did the experiment, and uh, the results were disastrous. And then you've had, since the 1940s, you had African-American history, African-American studies, African-American museums. You have African-American, you know, the Great Blacks and Wax Museum in Baltimore. Could you imagine if it was the Great Whites and Wax Museum in Baltimore? People would lose their minds, okay? And, but you have the Great Blacks and Wax Museum. You have all this black black cultural, you know, phenomena going on. And after, since the 1940s, up until 2005, so Kiri Davis does the same damn experiment, has some African-American kids sitting in a room, shows them the white doll, shows them the black doll, asks them the same questions. Guess what? They had the same answers, same responses. Because African-American youth, black youth, colored youth, Negro youth, niggas, they all hate themselves today as much as they hated themselves back in the 1940s. Not the educated ones, not the ones who are doing well and have the nice jobs and, and are integrated into society. You know, but the children who are living in poverty still, the, the people who still can't find their way. Because they're following, you know, uh, leaders who, ha who are really not leaders at all. <laughs> there, there does not exist a so-called black leadership, and thank God there isn't. Because the time is now to walk away from the culture of blackness. When you live upon this soil, you speak this language, you are an American, and all the rights that the Constitution provides to every citizen of the United States of America fall upon your shoulders, my friends, and you are, you are equal under the law, and that's the only place that matters that you have an equal footing under the law, a place where you can now make your stand to improve yourself. And the very man, the very words that, are kept, that keep being said over and over and over again by black generations after another, the first man that actually spoke those words was Booker Talaferia Washington, a former slave, a man who taught himself, he became an educator, an author, an orator, an advisor to presidents of the United States. <laughs> he had the answer, and he was resoundly rejected, resoundly rejected. Why? Because he wasn't making demands. 
in a country that said that you had no right to make a demand about anything because all you are is a slave that we just can't get our hands on right now. And with that, we will end this particular session and look forward to the next because we will hear from Booker T. Washington and you will see the brilliance, the genius of this man. He had the answer then, and the answer, it's still the same answer today. Until we meet again, my friends, remember, HermanTheExtraterrestrial.com and Memoirs of an Extraterrestrial, The Negro Conundrum, on Amazon. Until we meet again.